Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Dr Chris Irons. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of today's show. So Chris is a clinical psychologist, academic and leading author. He's passionate about compassion and compassion focused therapy. So I'm delighted that he's agreed to speak to us today on this subject that is really dear to my heart as well. Chris is also the co-founder of Balanced Mind, which is an organisation that aims to bring compassion and passion focused therapy to as many people as possible. So we'll be dropping that link in the show notes and I would recommend everybody take a look at that website. So thank you so much again, Chris, for joining us today on the podcast. Wonderful to be here, Michelle. Thanks for inviting me. So, Chris, I'm mindful that I've read your bio for our listeners, and I probably really haven't done your career much justice in my excitement to start this conversation with you today. And it's always really hard as a kind of podcast host to know which parts to include and which parts to kind of leave out. So, I'm hoping as we move through our podcast today, we can touch on your work and some maybe some initiatives that you've got moving forward. I guess one of the key areas that you've been involved in is this idea of compassion-focused therapy, which I'm not sure our listeners or maybe a few of our listeners may be aware of. So I'm just wondering for our listeners, are you able to explain a little bit more about what compassion-focused therapy is, please? So yeah, I'll do do my best then, Michelle, in trying to explain briefly what compassion-focused therapy is. So uh, one way of describing it is as a sort of science-based integrative approach to human distress and suffering. So what that means is that it integrates lots of different ideas, really. So some of those ideas are from the general sciences. So it interweaves things from evolutionary theory, from developmental psychology, social psychology, attachment theory, um, some of the biological sciences, so understanding our basic physiology and, and, and things like that. Uh, but then also integrates and draws from, you know, sort of wonderful psychotherapeutic traditions, psychodynamic ideas, cognitive behavioral ideas, and many others. And also, of course, leaning towards the East and um, taking from, adapting, um, you know, being shaped by some of the wonderful ideas and practices from uh, Buddhist psychology and practices. And so this sort of integrated approach then was developed by Professor Paul Gilbert here in the UK and initially used for people who were struggling with quite 
say quite severe enjoyment or health problems often characterized with quite difficult backgrounds of trauma high levels of shame and self-criticism but actually as time has gone on this approach has been used pretty much with everyone so any person diagnosed with a mental health problem um, we've done lots of work across the spectrum of mental health disorders but increasingly also using this approach for people who have never been diagnosed with a mental health problem will never go into uh, um, maybe mental health services, specific mental health services, but basically people who are experiencing life being tricky. Uh, and I guess this is the important bit really in that recognition that one of the only things that all of us will share or seven and a half billion of us on this planet is that we'll all suffer at various stages of life and therefore going back into that bit again and recognizing that point is so important because whoever you are, whether it is somebody who's struggling with a physical health problem, um, a mental health problem, whether actually you're somebody caring for somebody who's going through difficulties, whether you are a, a healthcare professional whose day-to-day -day job is trying to work with huge amounts of human suffering, the recognition is that all of us can benefit from understanding how difficult these things can be, but also understanding how compassion for others, but crucially for ourselves, can be transformative, can actually be a way in which we can start to relate to ourselves and I guess treat ourselves in a way that we might want to try to treat a best friend, somebody that we really love, and to be genuinely interested in our own difficulties and find ways to deal with it in a supportive and kind way. Thank you, Chris, for that amazing overview. I realise I gave you Mission Impossible to kind of summarise what compassion-focused therapy is, but you did a wonderful job, so thank you. And I think when I first kind of came across this, one of my wonderful psychology friends kind of gave me um, a book on compassion, Compassionate Minds by Paul Gilbert. I was kind of blown away with some of the theories and that idea that you're right, you know, at any point along our life, unfortunately, we will all experience suffering. Um, and that's kind of the, the bond that probably connects most, most of us as well you know throughout our lives we'll have these periods and we do work in caring professions but we're exposed to people in our lives as well so I think for me as you mentioned about learning to treat ourselves as our own best friend was a little bit of a game changer really I thought oh, gosh yeah I'd never thought that I could be be kind to myself <laughs> you know what's all that about I need to be critical to get myself out of bed and one of the things that I really liked within the theory was this idea and you kind of touched upon it the idea of the tricky brain and um, I was wondering if you'd be able to share a little bit more about these concepts of the tricky brain that's in the in the theory please yeah look, i think there's a couple of really important things that you just touched on there uh, michelle so one of them is this idea that as children most of us have some sort of experiences either from our parents our family our teachers about being encouraged to be kind and caring to other people um, and so you know that's something that many of us are familiar with and uh uh, and so from a CFT point of view, we talk about the three flows of compassion. So the fact that I can have compassion towards you or to somebody else who's distressed and suffering, uh, the basic definition of compassion is that it's sensitivity to the suffering of self and others with this commitment to want to relieve and prevent it. So this flow of compassion outwards, you know, people sort of recognize this, but it's also quite important to recognize that there's a second flow, which is when I'm suffering and in distress, am I able to seek out and then receive care, kindness, and compassion from other people. And it turns out that actually for many of us, uh, actually many people uh, working in, uh, in healthcare, uh, it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, we can be very blocked or have various fears to receiving kindness and care from others. But then the third flow, which is about self-compassion, which is really an intriguing one because 
as I often point out, we will spend far more time in our life in relationship with ourselves than we will do with anybody else that we ever meet in life. And in fact, if your listeners were to think about it, if they were to add every single hour that they are in a relationship with somebody else throughout their whole entire life, it comes nowhere close to the amount of hours that they spend in relationship with themselves. But here's the problem. What's our relationship with us? Like, how do we relate to ourselves? When were we taught as children how to relate to ourselves in a, in a kind, caring way? And for most people, they've never even thought about this idea. It's never even been raised by anyone in their lives. And, and sadly, rather than uh, a, a kind of caring, compassionate in a relationship, we can actually get caught up in a very self-critical, hostile way of treating ourselves and actually say things to ourselves that we would never, ever, ever say to our best friend, or our most loved one. Uh, you know, if you're a, a clinician, you know, you never say to your patient these types of things that you say to yourself. And so linking that then into this idea that you touched on about the tricky brain, CFT, because it has uh, an evolutionary psychology underpinning to it, what that I think helps us with is to allow us to recognize that whilst our brains have evolved in such a way that, I mean, they are stupendously wonderful. I mean, we have evolved a type of intelligence, which, which we talk about sort of linked to this thing called the new brain. So essentially, we've got these abilities to imagine things that aren't real. We can time hop, so we can both imagine, you know, what it would be like to go on a summer holiday this year. Or we can go back in time and go over things that happened in the past. We can imagine what other people are thinking and feeling and why they're acting in the way they are. And we can also look inwards and, and think about ourselves and, and understand a, a sense of self. And, and these abilities are, are wonderful. I mean, they've given rise to great works of literature and, and art and music. They have allowed us through technology to be talking today and for people at home to be listening to this podcast. Uh, they've come up for, for cures for illnesses or, or vaccines like for, for COVID. It's, I mean, this is brain of ours that's evolved, it sends people up into space. I mean, it's amazing what these uh, intelligent abilities, these competencies have done, but the, the problem is, and the snag is, these same amazing abilities under certain conditions get hijacked. And the conditions in which these get hijacked are when actually some very old competencies, some very uh, ancient, uh, functions of our brain, uh, which link into things like protecting us from harm and you know, emotions linked to things like anger and, and fear and, and shame and so on. Once they start getting activated, unfortunately what they can do is almost reach up and, and grab the way that we think and the way we imagine, and the way that we can reflect on the future or the past and actually drag them into something which can be quite tricky. So. If I give uh, our, our audience an example here, as far as we know, no other animal can consciously go back in time and play over the most shameful moment of their life and re-experience that in the here and now that then causes them problems. Uh, no other animal can be conscious of a, a lump somewhere on their body and then start to get concerned or worried about whether this might be a type of cancer and start imagining a future in which they might become very unwell and might uh, suffer a lot. Um, but we can do that. 
it's not our fault, but the problem is these loops in the mind that can start to emerge where we get caught up in these thinking, feeling spirals, whether it's to do with our health, whether it's to do with our relationships, whether it's to do with ourselves as a human being, you know, judgments and blame and criticism. Fortunately, this can then start to trigger lots of physiological processes linked to stress, basically, and we can actually experience quite a lot of distress and suffering from this in, in a way that we don't think that other animals can experience. And so CFT partly shares these ideas with people so that people understand a little bit about how their mind works, but also this key idea that it's not your fault. You didn't choose to have this ability to, to think, reflect, to worry, to ruminate. Uh, it's absolutely not your fault. It's a byproduct of the way that our brains have evolved. But once we look at this, once we become aware of it, what might we be able to do to help ourselves? How could I learn to be with the reality of what my mind is like? The fact that I can worry, that I can ruminate, that I can catastrophize about worst case scenarios, that I can get caught up in criticizing myself for various things and basically find wise and caring ways to, to work with the way that our minds are. Thank you so much for that. And I think listening to you speak, you know, just some of the, the theories that you've mentioned were a real game changer for me. You know, this idea about the self-criticism um, that you were picking up on. Um, and you mentioned, yeah, we wouldn't speak to our own best friends, our patients that way. And I suddenly realised that actually some of the, the way I speak to myself, I wouldn't even speak to my worst enemy like that. So why do I think it's okay to speak to myself like that? And then again, picking up on that tricky brain, that was also a real game changer for me to think, actually, you know, it's not my fault, but I can learn ways to help me deal with these loops. So with that in mind, Chris, I'm just wondering for our listeners who are probably equally now as having some light bulb moments or some game changing moments as we're speaking. I'm just wondering if if there is any way that you could advise what people may be able to do in their own personal practice, but also in the role as caring for others as, as well. Yeah, I guess one of the things that that compassion focused therapy tries to do is to operationalize what compassion is so we sort of have a definition but also the competencies the the, the abilities the skills that are involved in in being compassionate whether that's to somebody else maybe in the role as a, as a carer as a healthcare professional or some other guys but also in terms of how you would do that for yourself and so it, from our point of view it's really important to recognize that uh, we need certain things then when it comes to compassion. So the first bit for us of compassion, um, we, it's a bit technical, but we call it the first psychology of compassion, um, is that we need to be able to, to become aware of, to notice distress. So if I don't notice, for example, that you are tearful, that you're in, in physical pain, it's unlikely that I try to help you because I just not noticed it in the first place. So I need to notice that, that you, or, or it could be me, we're in distress. I need to be bothered about this. I, I need to have some basic motivation to be caring towards you or caring towards me. I need to be able to tolerate that distress. So one thing to hold in mind here for, for anyone listening is, it's one thing that I notice somebody else might be in pain but maybe their pain, their distress is so great that actually I feel overwhelmed and have to turn away. So this first part of compassion involves me being able to tolerate being in the presence of somebody else's distress or maybe my own distress. 
And then also to begin to have some understanding about that. So almost like a, an empathy, like what might be going on? So almost begin to understand this. So that's the first bit. So it almost like helps you to tune in, to move towards, to engage with distress. But then the second part, the second psychology of compassion is to do with, with wise action. How can I learn skillful ways to begin to alleviate somebody else's distress or, or my own distress? Now, as a healthcare professional, whether it's a nurse, uh, a GP, a psychologist, um, social worker, what we know is that we spend many years learning how to alleviate distress. And, and each of our professions has slightly different ways that they're taught how to try to alleviate distress. So the skillful ways that we can all learn how to do this, but it's also the case for ourselves. There are skillful ways that we can learn to do this. So in terms of your question, what I would advise people really is, is, is to lean into some of the ideas of, of CFT, to explore these a little bit more in a way about how you would go about getting fit from a compassionate mind perspective. You know, we all kind of have an idea, even if we don't do it or we don't particularly enjoy it, how to get physically fit. You know, we can row, we can run, we can swim, we can, you know, cycle, we can lift weights, we can do yoga. I mean, there's so many different ways. Uh, so we kind of have an idea about how to get physically fit when it comes to our bodies. Uh, but actually, when it comes to compassion and, and our minds we aren't necessarily taught so specifically the different things that might be needed and so what we try to do for people who are in caring roles is to guide them through here are some of these different abilities these different competencies each of them can be learned how about you try this thing how about you read this thing how about you listen to this and then when it comes to self-compassion it's exactly the same as well so we've got many books some that i've been involved in we've got apps we've got different things that basically take people through different ideas and practices to help them understand themselves, but also crucially to skill themselves up to know how to reduce distress, how to relate to themselves and to deal with the difficulties that go on in their life in a way that might be caring and supportive and, and ultimately wise in terms of how they are working with these difficulties. Thank you, Chris, for sharing those um, tips with us. You mentioned then about the, the work on self-compassion. I know that was one of the ways where we, in which we connected around your work on self-compassion. Um, I, I think I mentioned to you that we've developed some resources as part of the National HIV Nurses Association. But one of those was really underpinned by the work that you've already done. So I was just wondering if you'd be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about your self-compassion app. Um, for anybody listening, we're going to put it in the, the show descriptions um, within this podcast as well but you're able to tell us a little bit more about your self-compassion app I mean I love it I have it on all the time when I'm commuting everywhere thank you oh, thank you Michelle that's lovely to hear um yeah I guess it, it sort of started actually um back with the publication of our compassionate mind workbook so uh, you mentioned earlier Paul Gilbert's book the compassionate mind so Elaine Beaumont and I um uh, wrote a book in 2017 called the compassion mind workbook which was our attempt really to take some of the wonderful ideas uh, within cft and make them just really accessible to, to anyone really so whether you're somebody who was uh, a clinician a carer uh, somebody going through therapy or just anybody in the general public who was just interested in learning about this and so we've been really chuffed with the book it's got some great uh, feedback and reviews but 
one of the things, of course, is, is that whilst books are still amazing, um, there has been a bit of this, let's say, of a, a tech revolution, and that many of us, of course, recognize that we consume things now on our phones. There'll be many people listening to us talk now um, um, through technology, of course. They're, they're listening on their laptops, they're listening on their phones. And also, of course, a recognition that um, mobile phones have a, um, you know, a way of being able to be engaged with so apps. Of course, we can just turn to because our phones are pretty much there all the time, which isn't necessarily a good thing. But in this regard, it's a good thing. You know, it's unlikely that you carry a big book around with you constantly, whereas most of us carry our phone around wherever we go. So going back to your point, Michelle, actually, that means that whether you're just cooking your dinner, whether you're walking towards the bus or whether you're just on your lunch break, there you've got stuff that you can access immediately and so we started working with a, a fantastic app company called Sites, and uh, they were really interested in, in basically taking this workbook that we had and translating it into a really easy to access uh, app and so essentially what we've done is we've got 28 sessions on this app which take people through in a kind of step-by-step -step simple way ideas of the uh, compassion focused therapy model some of the practices that are key and evidence-based in CFT that help to reduce shame and self-criticism and anxiety and promote self-compassion and so on. And then also help people to put their compassion minds to work. So a whole variety of different exercises that take it even further really and help people to, to really learn about how they can uh, relate to themselves and other people in this uh, wise, strong, caring, compassionate way. And what I, I feel very proud of, actually, I, I would say it's probably the, the thing in my career that I'm the most proud of is this thing that's turned out now in which um, it seems to work really nicely that people can uh, either read through just small bits of information or there's the option of, of listening. So you can just listen to these ideas. And then with each of the 28 sessions, there's a practice. There's something that you can do to learn about compassion, learn about your mind, learn about your emotions but also practice and learn how to cultivate uh, your compassionate mind and how to be compassionate with yourself. And so um, we've been really, really chuffed with it, really, really happy with it. Um, and yeah, it will be wonderful to hear from your listeners to see how they find it. Uh, we're doing various trials with it at the moment for uh, uh, people in caring professions, the general public, and, and hopefully as time goes on to more specific populations of people with physical health difficulties and distress, I'm really just trying to show that not only is this an accessible thing for people to use, but also that it can really uh, help people, that it can reduce distress and it can enhance well-being in some sort of way. Yeah, thank you. I think, you know, I've got the side of me and our listeners can't see, <laughs> but I've got your Compassion Compassionate Minds workbook, which I've used extensively in with my nursing students to really think about this concept. So when I saw the app, I was delighted because it is more accessible as well. I mean, I still use the book heavily, but I like the idea of the, the app. As you've mentioned, it's quite portable. Also, I was really interested in your the work that you're doing around the app. I think it'd be lovely if we could think about maybe moving forward doing something for people living with HIV to see if that's um, something that would be accessible. So any listeners who are listening in who would like to help me with this idea, I'm just thinking in real time. Um, Chris is smiling, so I'm, I'm hoping that's a good sign as well. Absolutely, Michelle, because from my point of view, one of the things, of course, that we're trying to recognise is that there is the experience of, let's say, a physical health issue like HIV, and then there's the way that we relate to whatever that health issue might be. 
And both of those things are important. But of course, uh, what we can try to work on in part here is, can I recognize what happens inside me in my mind that can cause added or extra distress on top of something that's already difficult? So when it comes to HIV, how is my mind reacting to that? What sort of loops in the mind, worries, ruminations, self-criticisms am I getting caught up into? How often is my threat system getting triggered whenever I have to think about taking medication or having a, uh, an appointment uh, with a consultant about my health? How much do I want to ignore all of this and push it away and, and, and try to block it all out? And then, of course, shifting to how would I begin to engage with this in a courageous way? How would I begin to tune into my distress linked to this, both physically and psychologically? What could I do on a regular basis that might help to relieve some of the distress linked to this? And so for me, it would be absolutely wonderful if we could work together and to do some research on seeing how people find the app, because it's kind of why we developed it, really, to try to get out there to as many people as possible to see how they could use it to be helpful in their lives. Definitely watch this space because this is something that I will be pestering Chris about moving forward um, and keep listeners updated because I think it's just a wonderful idea that came to us in real time. So thank you so much. Also on that theme, and we've kind of touched on it about kind of maybe some difficult emotions. So I have got your book um, around dealing with difficult emotions. Again, um, as you can see, listeners can't see this, but it is really well used. There's lots of tabs open and um, bookmarks within that. So I was just wondering, Chris, are you able to, I know we've, we've talked about this, that actually we all, we all have difficulties and we all struggle. And some of that, and we've talked about this a little bit on HIV matters about, you know, our difficult emotions and how we manage our difficult emotions. And also, as we, as I've mentioned, maybe off, offline that, you know, we're Working within HIV care can evoke difficult emotions. And as you've mentioned, people living with HIV, that evokes difficult emotions. So I'm wondering, and and again, this is that, asking you to summarise your life's work in five seconds. So apologies for that in advance. But are there any tips or anything that you can share with our listeners around compassion-focused therapy and difficult emotions? Yeah, I guess there are a few things. The first thing is to recognize, you know, what is a difficult emotion? And and I guess when it comes to difficult emotions, what we mean, uh, well, there's a number of ways of thinking about it. Um, One is that uh, difficult emotions really are about any emotion that we struggle to experience in a helpful way. So the first thing to say is, you know, why do we have emotions? Well, from an evolutionary point of view, we have emotions because they are helpful to us in some sort of way. They can serve and energize our motives they can help to protect us they help to energize us towards things that we want the problem with them can be when we start experiencing certain emotions too frequently so it's like they're turning up in our lives too often they turn up when they're not needed so a little bit like i mean it's quite useful that you get a bit scared and a bit panicky if you are in a situation that could be dangerous for you that's quite a good thing It's less helpful to feel anxious and panicky when you're lying on your sofa just watching the TV and there's no danger around. Sometimes emotions are difficult when they turn up when they're not really needed. Sometimes emotions are difficult when they turn up and their volume is too extreme. 
So they can sort of turn up and a little bit like you have your favorite music, but if the, the stereos turn up too loud, it distorts the music, it's actually painful to hear. So as emotions turn up and they, they're just too loud, they're just overwhelming for us. We get caught up completely in fear or, or shame or, or whatever it is. Sometimes the problem with emotions are that they last too long. So they, they kick in and instead of actually just turning up for a little bit and then just slowing down, they actually stay online for longer than necessarily designed to, so they don't settle very easily. And then I guess sometimes a tricky thing for some people is uh, that certain emotions don't turn up in their life, maybe as frequently, frequently as, as could be helpful. For example, uh, people might find it very difficult to experience joy or excitement or, or happiness, or maybe uh, we might experience difficulties in, in experiencing sadness. And some people say, well, why is it a bad thing not to feel sad? Well, actually, sometimes sadness is a very helpful emotion to, to signal loss, to signal needs, to signal to other people that I'm in pain and that I, I need care. And that if we're blocked at that, sometimes people just assume that we're okay. And so they just keep on going on living their lives without recognizing that, that maybe actually we do need something. So first thing in helping people to think about difficult emotions is to recognize that we all have different patterns with this. And, and in the book, as you know, one of the things I try to do to help people is to split, uh, uh, basically to develop a model to split across different areas that people can struggle with their emotions. So sometimes people struggle with their emotions because they don't know the situations that might trigger something unpleasant. So it's almost like I just don't uh, really track it in my head that maybe it would be understandable that I get quite anxious and scared if I have to do a talk in front of a thousand people on something that I don't know very well. So some people aren't very good at tracking that, whereas other people are very good. They recognize this is going to be really hard. I think I'm going to need some help before it even happens. Sometimes the difficulty, so a second level of difficulty with an emotion is when an emotion has been triggered, but people don't notice it. So it's almost like it's already playing through in our bodies. It's already playing through our minds, but we're just quite cut off from it. We're quite disconnected from it. It's almost like from the outside sometimes, Somebody else might say, gosh, you know, Chris, are you okay? You look really sad or you look really angry. You know, no, no, I'm fine. You know, whereas actually I don't realize that my, my fists are clenched up or my shoulders are really tight and that maybe my face looks quite angry. So I'm showing the world this, but inside I'm not tracking it. A third difficulty sometimes is when people might notice that they're feeling an emotion, they can recognize it, something's playing out in the body, but they're not able to put a label to that. So it might stay as a very broad thing, you know, I feel awful, I feel terrible, I feel crap. And but it's very difficult to say, I feel angry, or I feel frustrated, or I feel irritated, or I feel full of sorrow or shame. So it can be very difficult. And one of the things that we know from the literature is when people are able to name and label their emotions, that can sometimes help to reduce some of the stress linked to emotions. So this whole idea of name to tame. So if you can name your emotions, this might help to tame them in one way. A fourth level that can be tricky for people is when they don't understand why they're feeling like they're feeling. So we have this amazing ability to invalidate ourselves, to tell ourselves that we shouldn't feel the way that we are, that nothing that bad or nothing serious enough is happening in our life, maybe that other people wouldn't feel this way, that we can actually be quite, uh, I find it very difficult to understand this. So, so a skill there for people to learn is, how can I begin to validate this, sort of almost understand and have empathy? I can understand that I'm feeling sad because I've just had this diagnosis and 
this has really shook my world up. Uh, I'm aware that I'm feeling ashamed because I'm concerned that now with this diagnosis or now that I'm living with HIV, like what are other people going to think? How are they going to treat me? So I'm feeling this sense of shame because I'm concerned that other people will think that I'm this or I'm that. So this bit where we try to help people then shift into becoming more validating and, and I guess having more understanding about their own difficulties, their own emotions. And then the final step that sometimes people struggle with is it's really about coping with or, or using emotions. So one of the problems sometimes can be is that I want to try to block or suppress my emotions. I, you know, I really actively want to fight them away or I feel that basically I cannot modify the emotion at all. It's sort of happening to me a bit like, you know, the dog walking me rather than me walking the dog. It's like my emotion is dominant. And another problem here is that people can be critical of the emotions they're experiencing or feel certain other emotions about the emotion. For example, I can feel angry or ashamed that I'm experiencing sadness. You know, men shouldn't be sad, they need to be strong. So I can start getting one emotion about another emotion so I can get in this like internal tussle. And so what we try to do at this fifth stage is help people to tolerate their emotions, to be in the presence of them without fighting them off, to be open to accept them. So acceptance doesn't mean that you have to be passive, but it just means that you can be with what is already here. And, but also skill people up. How can I learn to use this emotion? How can I turn it up sometimes a little bit, like the volume? Can I help to turn down the volume sometimes? But also, how can I use it? How can I express it? How could I show you, Michelle, that I'm, I'm sad? Like, can I practice that? Can I actually start showing that? How could I show you, maybe if you've upset me, that I'm, that I'm angry? But do that in a way that is constructive, that's helpful, not harmful. And so there are these sort of five areas then that we can work on. Each of us will have different skills, uh, strengths, but also limitations with each of these five phases that I've just talked us through. And what we try to do within the book and within CFT more generally is that we can use this as a bit of a guide to skill you up. But more broadly than that, we're first going to think about how by cultivating your compassionate mind through a whole bunch of exercises, some of which, uh, many of which are in the app as you talked about earlier, that almost this is like you're, it's like you're getting physically fit in a generic way to then start to decide to put that fitness towards a specific thing. So a little bit like, I don't know, a tennis player or a, like a 100 meters runner, uh, an athlete, they will do their sort of winter training. So they will get fit generically. They'll have to lose lots of generic fitness stuff. And then as the season gets closer, their coach will take them through more specific training exercises and practices to do with their events, you know, how to do this shot, how to play this, how to, to start the sprint. It's a little bit similar for us. We first need to build your fitness. So we build your compassionate mind. We take you through a variety of exercises that help with that. And then we start to turn it towards here are the different areas of skills that you can practice that will help you to manage your difficult emotions. Thank you. That That's really helpful. And thanks for spending the time to go through those steps and giving us that amazing overview. So thank you. For listeners, I will make sure that in the show notes that there is a link to Chris's book and also the Compassionate Minds workbook as well and Self-Compassion app.
before we move on to the part of the show that I really like as well as this part, um, are you able to share with our listeners any maybe new projects that you're working on, um, any sneak peeks of what to look out for? for? Yeah, there's a few things really. One of the things that we're really keen on at the moment is, is how do we try to bring uh, the ideas of the CFT model out of the therapy room into as many people's lives as possible. So partly that's what we were touching on earlier. Can we do more research to basically show with the app and with some like online self-compassion courses I've developed similar to the stuff that you're working on and, and the wonderful work you've done, Michelle. Can we show that this is helpful for as many people as possible? So can we show this might be helpful for younger people? Can we show that this is helpful for people going through particular difficulties like a recent uh, a diagnosis of HIV or something similar? Uh, can we show that this is helpful for, say, carers and healthcare professionals? So I think that stuff really excites me, really, just trying to show that this can be useful for as many people as possible. But the other bit that I'm really intrigued about at the moment and that uh, I'm working with, uh, with a colleague of mine, James Zena, is to focus on um, uh, compassionate leadership and compassionate organisations. So how would we take uh, the model which underpins compassion-focused therapy, some of the ideas with it, and of course, the concept more broadly of compassion. And how can we start getting that out there within any organization? So it could be uh, a bank, it could be an insurance company, it could be, um, it could be a school, uh, or of course it could be within the NHS or within a university. And the key thing here is that, well, there's two things really. One is what would a compassion organization look like, you know? How would it be set up? How would it function? How would it go about in hiring people, giving feedback to its staff, in supporting its staff, even in letting its staff go? How would you do that in a compassion-focused way? As leaders, I mean, being a leader is really difficult. Um, it's a really difficult job. So how would we skill up leaders to be able to have compassion towards the people that they manage, that they lead, even when some of those people you might not always like that much, or you might be a bit frustrated with, or you might find difficult to work with. But crucially, of course, how could you as a leader also know how to bring this to yourself? So how could you apply this inward? So we're setting up this new company called BALO, B-A-L-O, and uh, basically the stands for balance in organizations. How would we take a compassionate stance, a compassionate balance stance in organizations? So we're quite excited about that. And, and the other thing, uh, so I know that sort of partly links into some of your interests too, so it'd be wonderful to work with you more on this in the future too, Michelle. But the other thing that I'm really intrigued about is for, for carers and healthcare professionals where our day-to-day -day job is basically compassion, that's the currency. We, we are working with huge amounts of human suffering. How do we help people, uh, carers and healthcare professionals, to, to be compassionate? And it kind of feels like, you know, uh, of course, I don't want to come across as patronizing because sometimes people say, well, you know, we just do it. You know, it's just that we're a nurse, we're you know, a psychologist, I'm a psychiatrist, I just do these things, I'm a carer, of course I'm compassionate. But the interesting thing to me, Michelle, is that we've kind of got this idea, and I don't quite know where it came from, that number one, as healthcare professionals or as carers, we have high levels of compassion that will always stay at the same level almost like um i don't know like you know it's it's a sense in a way that this won't change so no matter what's going on in my life outside of work good bad neutral 
or no matter what's happening at work, you know, how many colleagues are sick or, or the changes in an organization or having to work with clients who have huge, huge pain and distress. But basically, I have that same level every single day in an unchanging way. Whereas, of course, if you really think about it, it's ridiculous. Our levels of compassion for others are constantly changing. Sometimes we're quite resourced. Other times, actually, we will be really struggling. Sometimes with things like burnout and feeling overwhelmed and so on. And so one of the things that I've been really trying to work on and help people with is, is how, as carers and healthcare professionals, can we really think about what we can do to support our compassion? And one of the ideas that I've been working on recently, and I'm hopefully going to do some research on, is this whole idea of um, uh, warming up as uh, healthcare practitioners, as, as carers. And, and the way that I sort of relate to it is, if your listeners were to imagine, if I go back to sports for a moment, a tennis player like Serena Williams or a you know, famous athlete, uh, if you imagine that there they are in the, the final, the biggest sort of event of their lives, uh, but because they overslept, because they weren't very organized, they, they've literally just turned up and, you know, 10 seconds before the event actually starts, they haven't warmed up, they haven't prepared. I mean, it's just ridiculous because, of course, athletes prepare they, they warm up their bodies and minds before they do their event and they do that of course because they know if i don't do that i might sustain an injury but also my body is going to perform better uh, if i warm up first if i prepare it so i had this idea that i've been talking about a bit which i think is just for me it's really fascinating why is it that as healthcare professionals we don't do the same thing why is it that we don't warm up our minds and bodies before our event, so to speak, which is to work with human suffering? And given that human suffering is massively difficult, painful uh, to engage with and can trigger a lot of threat, of course, in the person experiencing it, but also in us, it, it really intrigues me then that we haven't really thought about that. We somehow just imagine that the clinician will always have this amazing level that's never changeable and can just be so... We're going to just start doing some research, hopefully, on this to see what happens to clinicians and to carers when they specifically, purposefully engage in warming up their compassionate minds before they engage in trying to alleviate somebody else's suffering. And then on the back end of that, just as professional athletes after their events, whether they won or lost, will spend time warming down. That's that's also really fascinating to me, how many of us as, as nurses, psychologists, uh, GPs, but also, I guess, as, as carers, looking after people on a day-to-day -day basis, how often do we finish our job, which is involved being with suffering all through the day, and then go directly into the next thing in our day, which could be, I don't know, looking after our children, uh, spending time with our partner, uh, spending time with our friends. And some people are naturally quite good at shifting out of one mode into another. Sadly, in my experience personally, but also working and supervising many, many healthcare professionals, Many people find that difficult, and they actually hold on to a residue of the pain and suffering that they've been working with, and and start to interact with other people from that position. And, and sadly, of course, as the months go on, this is going to affect your relationships. It's it's potentially going to bring more more shame, more shadow into your home life, and and of course, in due turn, that creates more distress and suffering for you, which if we're not careful, then influences your ability to be. The caring, compassionate version of you in your day-to-day -day job. So, so those types of things I'm really fascinated, Michelle, because I, I don't think we've done a very good job 
at teaching each other how to be compassionate, where we expect everyone to do this in their caring roles, I don't think we've actually gone around thinking about it in a more nuanced way and sustain that as an ability. That's really interesting, Chris. And I know we've we've talked about this before. And you know, I am really interested in the current, definitely nursing workforce crisis, and which impacts on the whole workforce crisis as well. And being a trainer of nurse or a nurse educator, I am really interested in this idea of how we support people to develop compassion. That we think it's just like a magic thing that we we just turn up and we're compassionate that we've got a compassion you know suit on and it's always filling we're always flowing with compassion but actually that's not the case is it and I think it's giving ourselves permission to learn this and I think in nursing we definitely I don't know what psychology or medicine's like but we call them soft skills and actually they're not soft at all they are really really hard and I think we can tend to think oh well these soft skills you've either got it or you haven't um but actually they're really hard and they can be nurtured and supported i completely agree with you and i think that description of soft skills really does a lot of damage actually because this is the foundation this is the bedrock of everything and actually a lot of studies show now that actually this is central central to healthcare um so it's not the sort of you know uh, the medicine or the you know even the you know, the, the type of surgery you have or the type of therapy you do, the way that the surgeon, the, the GP, the nurse, the, the psychologist is, their, their ability to tune into for empathy, for warmth, for compassion, has a significant impact in outcomes. But also from a CFT point of view, we talk about this a lot, actually. What are the fears, blocks, and resistances to compassion? And, and this is really crucial because what we recognize is there are things that get in the way of this. Now, sometimes these things can uh, be external to us. So, for example, you know, I, I often hear nurses, but other people too, you know, sort of say, I, I would like to spend more time with my patients, but I've got so much paperwork to do. So sometimes it can be sort of an external block like that. Sometimes it can be an internal thing. It's like, I, I don't know how to do this. For example, um, I don't know, a client who's, you know, a patient's very, very distressed and, and you know, uh, panicky and, and, you know, crying uncontrollably sometimes it can be that i want to help i I just don't know what would i say like i don't feel chris i I don't feel like i've got the skills to do this Uh, and then sometimes of course it's the same thing when it comes to compassion for ourselves you know self-compassion there can be fears there can be blocks there can be resistances you know self-compassion is selfish it's it's weak you know it's letting myself off the hook it will drop my standards now it turns out all the research shows none of this is true but of course, if you hold some of those ideas about compassion to others or compassion to yourself, this can get in the way. So we really want to start, uh, and I think it does need to start with uh, with education, with training, um, and some of the wonderful work that you do, Michelle, in, in helping people to start thinking about what are these blocks and, and fears that I might have, and, and that there's nothing wrong with having them. All of us can have these fears, these blocks, these resistances. How do we tune into them? How do I learn about them? And how do I work with them so they don't block me doing my job? They don't get in the way of me being able to be the potential helpful person that I could be to my patients. Uh, and so I think we've got an awful lot of work to do. And it's not to say, of course, that you know people aren't learning wonderful things and you know the training courses are fantastic in many ways, but I just feel that on something as, as central and fundamental as this, we actually need to do a huge amount of extra work in our training of our healthcare practitioners. 
Thank you, Chris. And we will definitely be inviting you back to the show to hear more about your work and particularly the compassionate leadership work and everything really. So thank you for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. So this is part of the show that I really like. This is the part where we get to know you more. Could you share with our listeners something that you do as part of your own self-care? Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, I find particularly helpful is how can I integrate practices that I will share with my clients and, and other people? How can I do those alongside the things that I also do in my life. So what I mean by that is that we've got lots of evidence now that if you could spend 10 minutes, uh, 15 minutes, you know, doing a, a type of exercise or practice, to your breathing, imagery, compassion, and so on, these can be really powerful. But whilst those are brilliant, if you could do those, there's also wonderful opportunities uh, to integrate those ideas alongside your daily schedule. Because sometimes, of course, life is busy and we just don't, we forget or we don't have enough time or, or whatever it is. So what I really appreciate is that maybe when I come down in the morning and I first uh, start working, I will do some, for example, breathing rhythm practice as I'm reading through my, my emails. Uh, as I go to, let's say, um, go to pick up my son from nursery, I will try to practice mindfulness as I'm walking on the streets. Uh, so I'm just very much in the here and now, very much present here. Um, I will try to have little prompts throughout my day to remind me to do these things. So I know many of us will have this, but on my screen phone, uh, my phone, this, the screen there uh, is uh, this picture of my, my son laughing. Um, and so what I'll try to do those before I actually open my phone is just to spend a minute with that because it reminds me basically of, of him, uh, my, my love and my care to him and also just happiness. So these little moments that you can bring in and I think it's so important because I remember uh, quite a famous uh, um, uh, Buddhist monk and scientist Matthew Ricard talking about this that whilst it is amazing if you can spend an hour a day doing meditation practice and all this kind of stuff, if you were just to take a minute every hour through your waking day, you know, most of us are awake for about 16 hours a day, that's 16 minutes of practice then you would have done. And would it be possible just for a minute each hour or even 30 seconds or even 15 seconds just to engage in something, to connect with yourself mindfully, your breathing, your body, course then maybe your intention to be compassionate or caring to yourself or to others and I think sometimes these small little drip drip effects can be so powerful and then spreading out and uh, you know, sort of helping me in terms of my self-care and my my well-being I guess. Yeah, thank you I love the idea of incorporating self-care as part of your routine you know in 
like you said, those little moments that, that soon add up. I think we can get into the danger of thinking, oh, well, that's an afterthought. I'll do that, the self-care at the end of the day. And that's the thing that always gets cut because we have a, a busy schedule. So the more we can incorporate into um, parts of our day, the better. So a wonderful point that you're making. I mean, one key one for me, I, I, I love coffee. Um, it's definitely part of my day. Uh, I would say it's part of my self-care, whether that's uh, me telling lies to myself is another thing or not. But one of the interesting things, of course, is as the coffee's being made with the machine, where's my mind? Is my mind caught up in that tricky brain thing, as we talked about earlier, Michelle, with loops in the mind? I'm worried about um, you know, a meeting later on in the day, or I'm, I'm reliving you know, something that I said wrong you know, the other day to a friend. Or am I present with the sound of the machine making the coffee, the smell of the coffee as I can begin to smell it? You know, am I present as I'm beginning to stir the milk in? And, and the point there is that we've got these wonderful opportunities through the day to either be mindless or mindful. And I guess for me, just trying to have 30 seconds as I do that, that's not a big thing because I'm already making the coffee. It's not like I'm having to go massively out of my way. I'm already making the coffee and the coffee smells great. I love that. So spending more time just mindfully noticing smells and sounds and textures that's a fantastic thing that I can just try to remind myself to do three times a day. If I'm having coffee three times a day, okay, let me do that three times a day there. And then I'm just building in 30 seconds or a minute without having to do something that feels like it's too burdensome. Now, don't get me wrong, I also enjoy and appreciate sat down meditations and practices, but for me, this is just a really nice way just to live alongside what I'm doing. This whole idea, basically, we talked about it in the app, of um, mindfulness without meditation. Uh, I think those ideas can be very powerful for people sometimes. So are you able to share with us a book that you've been reading recently? Yes, um, I, I read a lot and um, I, I have to say I'm one of those people who will sort of jump into a book and then uh, not necessarily finish it because I'm getting intrigued by something else. Uh, and so that's definitely um, uh, definitely on the downside, I guess. Um, but actually, one of the ones that uh, I've been reading recently uh, is a, a CFT one. Um, uh, obviously, I, I write these books and, and contribute to them. But the CFT one for me is really interesting because it's the it's just been published. Actually, it's just out uh, a month ago uh, on CFT, and basically, it's it's almost like the the go to book, basically. And it's an edited book, so there's some wonderful chapters by Paul Gilbert, but then essentially drawing from people across the world who are really into compassion-focused therapy, uh, you know, many of whom are like really good friends and uh, colleagues of mine. But it's wonderful because it's uh, actually just really seeing what people are doing, how they're applying this, how they're integrating it into their own personal lives, uh, how they're using it with their clients in a variety of different ways. And so I've just been really enjoying it because it feels like it's, it's you know, here's a, 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 a direct insight into people who are leading in this field, who are doing some wonderful developments on it. Um, and, yeah, I've been really uh, appreciating that and, you know, learning a lot, even though I've been teaching this stuff and researching it and uh, writing about it for a very long time. It's so wonderful, actually, when you can just keep on learning and topping up all that knowledge from from wonderful people out there. So, um, so anyway, it's called uh, Compassion-Focused Therapy, Clinical Practice and Applications. Um, and so if anybody's interested, they can find that on all the usual uh, book distributing websites. 
Brilliant. Thank you. We'll definitely pop that into the HIV Matters bookstore as well. I think I'll probably be adding that one to my uh, Amazon cart as well. So thank you. So finally, um, just giving you a magic wand question here, Chris, which may be really difficult. Um, if time, resources and money weren't an issue, what would you like to change or see done differently? Just a small question to finish on. A little one to finish on. Um, it's really interesting. I guess that there's, there's two bits, if you would allow me, that would indulge me in that. So there's a broad bit, which is if I had some ability in which I could have every single parent in the world educated in compassion, so as we had essentially more caring early experiences and fewer uh, rejecting abusive you know unpleasant ones for me that would make a, a profound difference uh, and i guess trimmed with that would be this sort of desire in a way that the ideas from cft and, and similar approaches would be actively taught in schools that actually this would be something that you know would be embedded you know, just directly in our training. I mean, we, we learn amazing things as kids, don't we, about, you know, science and geography and English and math and all the rest of it. But actually, we don't teach our children how to deal with the most fundamental and important thing they'll ever need to do, which is themselves, their own minds. Uh, and so for me, those two things, if we could get people, you know, really learning about this as, as parents and as uh, as a young people, you know, I feel this would just have a very profound change on on all of us, really. Um, now, of course, there's other things, of course, you know, poverty and wars and all the rest of it. I'm not trying to, you know, sort of reduce the importance of those things. But given we've been talking about compassion and, you know, for me, getting in at that early stage would make such a profound, profound change uh, in terms of the work that I do, really, because, uh, you know, that, that for me, I would be the happiest psychologist in the world if I no longer was needed so much. Uh, what would that need? It's not more of me, it's not more psychologists to go out there and do therapy, it's to get there earlier on so that actually fewer people you know, go through the things that can lead to you know, huge amounts of human suffering. So yeah, I guess that would be my, my magic wand desire. Thank you. And what a wonderful way to end today's podcast on compassion. So thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today on the podcast and for sharing so many wonderful insights. We will definitely be inviting you back to the show. So thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Michelle. It's been an absolute uh, joy to be here and spend this time with you. So thank you so much. Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, 
head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.